I had a good friend who came from Iran. I, I will say his name was Ali. That was not his name. But uh, as I was working in Europe, and I was the head of the Mission to Muslims Committee for the European Baptist Federation, one of the things I wanted to do was to find a helper that could work with me, somebody who uh, knew Islam, who could help me in developing a satisfactory plan for outreach in both evangelism and social help for the large Muslim community in Europe. Well, I began my look, and I first met Ali at a meeting that we had of uh, Christians in the uh, middle of, of Germany, close to Frankfurt. Well, when I met Ali, I was impressed with him. He was a very talented young man. In fact, he was one of these young men that just dressed uh, outstandingly. He was a, a very handsome person, and he showed me a book that he had recently written, and the name of the book was Iranian Christian. In fact, Ali was not all that young. He was probably somewhere in his 40s about that time. He had his young wife with him, too, and his young wife was an American, and they had only been married for about four or five months. They had met at the University of Texas. He had written this book on Iranians and Christians, and he said it was his own personal testimony. Well, I read the book on the first night that I got a copy of it, and I was deeply impressed with it because it told me the story of a man who was in the Iranian Air Force during the time of the Shah. And then he came into contact with some Christians, and, and over a period of time, he became a Christian. And the book told about all the difficulties that he had and the problems that he had with his parents and told about uh, all these very fascinating escapades. One time when he was sent up on a secret mission to the northern part of Iran, and, and they captured him, and they accused him of being a Christian, and they were going to cut off his head, and, and God miraculously saved him. And, and it was really quite, quite a fascinating book. I was really interested in it. And so as I read this book, I talked to him, and I said, Ali, do you think you would like to work with us as we try to find ways to reach Muslims in Europe in the, in the next days. He said, well, yes, I think I would. So I went to my director of missions at that time, a man by the name of Dr. J.D. Huey, and I said, Dr. Huey, we've got this man. This is a book he's written. He's, been, uh, he's married now to a Southern Baptist gal. He's going to a Southern Baptist church down there in, in Houston, Texas, uh, and uh, I think this is just a wonderful fit. So I was always kind of glad because my director said to me, all right, Bill, I'll take over from here. I don't want you involved anymore. And I, I kind of had my feelings hurt now. You know, I was the one that made this contact. Well, I can go ahead and go along with it. So we hired Ali to be our specialist. And um, then he and his wife, and, and I talked to his wife one time, and I, I said to her, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about something I want to talk to you about. She said, what's that? I said, I've discovered that most of these relations where you have a, a Christian man or woman together with a former Muslim, that there are some very deep cultural problems, and sometimes these marriages don't end up very well. And she said, Bill, she says, don't worry about that. She says, uh, I have my doctor's degree in intercultural relations, and uh, Ali has his doctoral degree in intercultural relations. And we met at the University of Texas in the intercultural uh, relations department. 
And we have talked about this and we have studied it and we have solved all of these problems. There will be no cultural problems between us. Take my word. And I said, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Well, we went ahead and hired him. And uh, my director said, he needs to live down in Augsburg, whereas I was living uh, all the way up in Belgium, so I didn't have that much contact with him. But Ollie began to work with us, and what we would do is go to various churches, and we would tell people about Islam. We had a lot of invitations. But the thing that bothered me a little bit about Ollie was that when he spoke, there seemed to be a lack of love. There seemed to be a lack of compassion. It, it seemed to be a, a hateful attitude. The hateful attitude was against Islam, but it was also kind of carrying over a little bit about Christians. Well, I didn't worry too much about it, but I was concerned that, that, that I didn't see, let's say, the fruits of the Christian life that I wished that I would have seen. I was concerned about that. Well, to make a long story short, about six months after he began, I received a telephone call from his wife, and she said, Bill, I'm getting a divorce immediately. I am leaving. And I said, wait just a second. You told me you had solved all these problems. She said, I can't stand it anymore. She said, nobody could have told me the pressures and the problems I was going to have. I would not have believed them. I'm leaving him immediately. Well, one of the things that happened was Ollie's mother came to live with him. And as soon as that happened, you know, they went back into the old cultural norm of the mother being the dominant uh, person in the family, in the home, and the wife couldn't put up with it. Well, basically what happened is that they got a divorce. Well, we as Southern Baptists have a fascinating rule, and the rule says this, that if you are divorced, you may not work for us. So I had to go to Ollie, and I had to say, Ollie, I'm very sorry, but you can't work with us anymore. We're going to give you six months, and then after six months, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be uh, terminated. And he was very concerned about that and said, well, okay, I guess that's all right. One of the things we did is we had large conferences of people in Germany and in Europe, and many people would come, and, and Ollie was the one who was going to help us. So Ollie was going to be terminated in six months. Well, about three months from the time he was going to be terminated, um, I got a telephone call from Ollie. Bill, I've been beaten up, and a bunch of uh, uh, Muslims from North Africa beat me up, and they badly hurt my back, and... Oh, I'm in terrible shape. It's terrible. So I got in my car, and I went down to Augsburg, and he said, yeah. He said, I was out witnessing the Muslims, and they beat me up. And he says, oh, my back's in terrible shape, and I just don't know what to do. So I went ahead and said, well, gee, that's too bad, Ollie. I brought my tennis racket with me. Ollie and I used to play tennis together all the time. And he said, well, maybe I can try it. I'll see. So we went out there, and he played a strong game of tennis, and when we got over, he said, oh, I shouldn't have played that. My back really hurts me, and this is so bad, so bad. Well, we did that about three more times. Well, what happened was, as soon as he left the employment of the Foreign Mission Board, he turned around and he sued the International Mission Board for $5 million because we had not told him of how dangerous it was to work with Muslims in Europe, even though he'd written this book about all these things that were happening. Well, also what we discovered later on was that he had his task as a spy from Islam to penetrate our organization and to find out what we were doing 
and when possible to uh, to cause problems. We were a little bit concerned because almost everybody that came to our conferences from various other spots uh, of Europe received these death threats. And we were wondering why we received these death threats. And we realized that basically the death threats had come from Ollie. Ollie was involved in that. So I, I had a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth about about Ollie because in reality he was lying to me. He was not telling the truth. He was saying that he was a Christian. We later found out that he was anything but a Christian. So truth. Now, we have a lot of different wrong conceptions, I think, of Muslims. Anytime you are a majority living pretty well and isolated uh, in an isolated environment, and you have somebody that is over there outside of the environment, you have all kinds of different uh, feelings and attitudes towards them. I've heard all kinds of things, such as you can never trust a Muslim. I've heard the things that said that Muslims say that women aren't going into heaven. I've heard them say before that all women, all Muslims hate. And you hear all these different things that are happening. And I began to realize that, that to a small degree, the problem is not really um, that, that the people are like this, but I think there is such a radical difference in the cultural backgrounds that sometimes we simply don't understand them. And if we understand them, we can understand where they're coming from. So the the two topics that I want to talk about during this particular period is truth and fear in Islam. Now, Ali was simply not telling me the truth. And yet, I think that Muslims believe in truth. In reality, Muslims have two different types of truth. They have one type of truth that is called an absolute truth. And an absolute truth means it cannot be uh, changed. It is absolute truth. I guess we as Christians have exactly the same thing. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the truth. We believe he's the true way. We believe there's no other way to salvation except through Jesus Christ. So in one very strong way, we do believe in an absolute truth. And our absolute truth is the Bible being the word of God, Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Salvation is only through Christ. So, so we have that. And the Muslims have that too. And they, they have their very strong belief on, on the Quran, their very strong belief on, on Sharia law. They, they believe that there is an absolute truth and that this absolute truth cannot change at all. And when we come to Sharia law, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But then they also have what they would call is a relative truth. And they said a relative truth is a truth that, that has its existence in the absolute truth, but it is not necessarily the absolute truth. And one of the writers that I read trying to explain this theory said it's kind of like the idea of, of a flashlight or a searchlight. And um, what it is, you're in a dark room and you, you get that flashlight and you turn it on to the wall. And the very center of that light is very intense. But the further you get out from that center, the light begins to dissipate until way out on the side there is still light, but the light is not nearly as strong. But the light is strong right in the center. And they say that that, that, that light in the center is absolute truth. And then they say the relative truth 
the further you get away from the center, the more the relative truth is, is still there. It's still in existence. It's still truth. But it cannot be, you know, considered to be the actual truth. Well, all of that to say that we as, as Christians have a tendency to look upon all truth as either truth or false. The kids in our school have these exams, true or false. There's no T plus or F minus. Or it's a true or false. There's no, there's no relativeness to it. It's, it's either true or it's false. And we have a tendency in Christianity to say the same thing. It is true or false. You go to a, a jury or, or to a court case and they say, I promise to tell the truth. There's no give or take. It is the truth. But in Islam, they, they have this relative truth. Al-Ghazari, who lived about in the, about the year 1000, one of the greatest Muslim theologians, wrote, Know that a lie is not wrong in itself. If a lie is the only way of obtaining a good result, it is permissible. We must lie when truth leads to unpleasant results. So you run into an interesting situation working with Muslims, and that is that, that truth is not always truth as we would define it. Now, I, I say this, that when I am talking with somebody that comes out of Islam, and they tell me something, I will never tell them that it's not true. I will believe it. They can tell me anything they want to, and I will believe it. Because I have a tendency to like to believe people and believe that people tell me the truth. Now, I'm not going to put a lot of weight on it. I'm not going to make any decisions based upon that fact that that person has said something and I said it has to be true. I'm not going to relate things to you that Muslims have told me as truth because they said it, but I'm not going to disbelieve them. Because in my culture, I believe that it is just true and false, but with them, there is this relative truth. And I feel like we have to really begin to understand that. Um, you know, Muslims will say such things. Like I read one writer that said, Islam is basically a nonviolent religion. It does not approve of violence at all. Well, if, if I believe in truth, absolute truth, I will say, aha, Islam is a nonviolent religion because this Muslim has said that. Did you, hear, did you read that? He said it's nonviolent. It's nonviolent. Amen. No, I don't believe it. Well, I do believe he says it, and he might believe that, but, but I think that, that we run into a, a very great cultural problem whenever we start trying to deal with Islam. Now, one of the more interesting things that I, I discovered one time was in reading one of these, these um, books, and the title of it was Lying in Islam. And the author said that... Um, that there are four ways that the Quran gives the permission for a Muslim to lie. The Quran gives that. And then I read another book one time, and this other book said, no, there's not four, there's five. Now, they did not give the Quranic scriptures to, to back that up. He was just making a statement and said, there are these five ways that it is allowed to lie. Well, let me go ahead and give those to you, and, and, and you might be able to understand then sometimes the way that, that Muslims think. The first one is, it is all right to lie to save one's life. And uh, they gave the illustration, for instance, that if you are in Gaza and your son has committed a, 
an attack against the Israeli soldiers. And he comes running home and he says, Mom, Mom, they're looking for me. And the mother and the dad say, Listen, we've got this fake floor down there in the basement. Go underneath and we will put these boards over it and some dirt over it and you'll be there. And the Israeli soldiers come and say, Is your son here? And the mother and father said, No, we haven't seen him for, for three weeks. That's a lie. They, 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 he's downstairs in the basement. What are you talking about? But they say with the Quran, it's allowed to lie. Then another point where they say that it's all right to lie is to effect a peace or a reconciliation. To effect a peace or a reconciliation. Now, what does that mean? That means if there is problems between two Muslims, problems between two societies, two, two countries, you can lie in order to try to get a reconciliation. Why? Because the result of that reconciliation is going to be much better than the negativeness of the lie that you've told. So if you can bring about reconciliation, then go ahead and lie. It is, in the Quran, permitted. And the third one I find to be very interesting, and that is to affect, no, no, to persuade a woman. <laughs> now, I, I read a little bit further on what they were talking about, to persuade a woman, and what they were saying is that is to persuade a woman to become your wife. It is all right to lie in order to persuade a woman to become your wife. I had some more problems with this one than I did with the idea of saving the person's life or to bring about reconciliation. One time I was at a conference, basically it was in Dearborn, and uh, one of the uh, little sub-conferences that we had, the smaller groups, was dealing with women in Islam, and so I went to it, and I sat next to an, an Anglo lady, and I said, why are you here? And she said, well, I, I married a... Uh, a man from Syria. I said, oh, really? Yeah. I said, are you still married? She said, no. And she said, I just wanted to be here because I wanted to see what they were going to say. And so she gave me her testimony. And she said, she said again, much what happens in, in the lives of so many uh, people from the West, ladies from the West, he came very attractive, very nice, showed me respect and love. And during the time of the courtship, he said, you're my only love. I love you. There is nobody else I've loved the same as I love you. I love you more than anything. And then he said, I have a large factory back in Syria. And it actually belonged to his father. And when his father died, he was going to inherit it. And he was very wealthy and had several houses back in Syria. And, and, and he really loved her. So she said, I married him. And she said, I must admit that the fact that, that he loved me so much was, was one of the reasons. And the fact that he had this, this wealth was another reason. So after they got married, she discovered that he had two other wives back in Syria. And he also, she also discovered he didn't have a factory, he didn't have anything. He was just there without any, any support whatsoever. And the next thing she knew, she had to support him. Well, she came up and she said, how could he lie to me? You know, how could this take place? Well, you've got to remember that to try to win the favor of a woman to become your wife, it's all right to lie. Now, why? Because their, their theory and their thinking is this. When that woman marries the, the man, she's going to be better off than she would have been single. Now she's in good hands. She's got a husband. And if the person is from the West, she's got a Muslim husband, which is even better, and that helps to bring her to Islam. So it's all right. 
probably one of the more uh, devastating films that you might want to look at, and uh, you can still buy it in a video shop most places in the world today, is a video entitled Not Without My Daughter. And it is a true story of a uh, lady here in the United States that married a Iranian doctor. And uh, the film was made. In fact, I was reading about Islam in the media, and they said that film that was made depicted Islam in such a poor life that no film will ever again be made that shows Islam in its poor life as that film does. And sure enough, they've been successful in keeping any films that depict Islam in a negative light, and they have ways of doing it. They just simply say, if you make that film, we'll burn down your, your studio, and they mean it. So, so this film, Not Without My Daughter, was interesting, and the book was also interesting, because what it said was this. Uh, that this lady married the fellow, and uh, then the revolution took place in Iran, and, and this man's family was, was more of the radical side. And so the man came to his wife one time and says, Dear, I want to go back to Iran and visit my family. And she says, no, I don't want to go. I'm afraid. It's an uproar. It's not, it's not very good back there. Please, let's stay here. No, no, I want to go back. And I want you and my daughter to go with me. And she kept saying no, and he kept saying yes, and tension in the house. And, and uh, she said one time in, in the discussion, I'm afraid that if we go, you will not allow us to come back. And he says, that's absolutely untrue. I will allow you to come back. And so she said, we've got a Koran here. Will you swear on this Koran that we will come back? And he got the Koran and says, I swear that we will come back in two weeks. And she said, okay. They got on the plane. They went over to Iran. They got there. After they'd been there two weeks and got ready to go back, he says, I'm sorry, we're not going back. We're staying here. Of course, she went wild. She couldn't believe it. You promised. And one of the men in the household, one of the uncles of this man, was one of the top imams in, in Iran at that time. And she went to him and she said, my husband swore on the Koran. And he said, I will definitely let you come back. And he swore to God on the Koran. And the imam says, eh, makes no difference. You're a woman. And that was it. That was it. The truth was not important. There was no truth as such. Uh, you can say anything to a woman to try to win her, to try to bring her to the belief. I, I don't really know why any Muslim, uh, any, any uh, Christian girl or lady would become a, a Muslim. But you would be surprised at the number of people that that's happening to today. I speak to many, many clubs uh, around in California, around in, in the whole world, and many times I ask the question, how many of you know somebody in your acquaintance or in your family where the girl has recently married a Muslim? Will you raise your hand? There's been very few times where there's been no hand. There's been one or two or three hands. I remember I was in Sweden one time, and uh, I was talking, and I had a group of people that I knew quite well. And I made mention, and I said to the, uh, the group there, I said, under no circumstances do you allow your daughter or anybody that you know to marry a, a Muslim. I said, the culture is so different. The problems are so great. You just simply should not do it. It is a wrong move to go.
And when I got done, one of these ladies that I knew quite well that I had helped disciple her came up to me and said, Bill Wagner, I can't believe what you said. I didn't realize that you were so prejudiced. And I thought you were a Christian leader and you're prejudiced. And she, she just read me the riot act. And I couldn't understand it well. About an hour later, another one of my friends came up to me and said, you know why she was so upset with you? And I said, no, why? Because her daughter is marrying a Muslim in two weeks. So I went and I apologized to her, and she was still upset. Well, it lasted for about nine months, and then they got a divorce. Total catastrophe. And I, and I could have said that, but but again, I don't know why people would do that, because... Muslims have that permission to be able to lie to a woman. Another one is when taking a trip. And they interpret that as being a business transaction. Because at the time of when the Quran was written, most trips were these caravans, and they were trading caravans. And they would go from place to place, and they would trade. And it was said that when you take a trip, it's, it's all right for you to lie. And that means in business, it's ready to lie. Now, why? You've got to remember one thing, that we as Christians in the Western world particularly, we emphasize the individual. In Islam, they emphasize the community. And what is good for the community is good for the individual. With us, the individual is so important, much more than the community. So when they, they come along and they say, okay, let's assume that you go on a business trip, and let's assume that you make a lot of money, and maybe you have lied and told some fibs and everything during that time. But you come back and you have an enormous amount of money. And then you give that money to the community and the community benefits. The community is benefiting. And as long as the community benefits, then, then you can tell a lie. There, there is no problem on that. And then the fifth one that, that, that was added this from some other sources is you can lie in winning somebody to Islam. You can lie in winning somebody to Islam. I told you that when the 9-11 took place and all these mosques were open and they said, come and learn what Islam really is. And I went to there and they were telling me what Islam really is. And I was about ready to stand up and say, it's a lie. This is not what Islam is. Why are you saying it? You can say it because if it can influence somebody to where eventually they will become a Muslim, they are so much better off, and the, and the uh, mosque is better off, and the community is better off, so it's all right to lie. It wasn't too long ago that I went to a German mosque, and we always go to these mosques with my classes, and they ask various questions. And, and so I thought I might ask a question one time of the imam. He was a Turkish imam. And I said, now, uh, let's just assume that you've got a member of your organization and uh, a, a Muslim, and he becomes a Christian, what happens to him? And the man answered very simply. He says, oh, we will wish him the best. We will, we will thank him for the contribution he made while he was a Muslim. We will wish him the best. We will send him off, and we will be thankful for all the wonderful contributions he made to us. That's a lie. They'd probably kill him. But what he wanted to do was to give the right answer to us because he was attempting to try to, to help us and to try to influence us a little bit more towards Islam. I have one particular mosque I go to all the time, and, 
And uh, I keep telling my class that, that you can manipulate very much the imam. And uh, I do it every time, and it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. But when I go to the mosque and my students are there, and I say, what we will do is we'll start off, and I will make a statement. I'm so glad to be here because Islam is a peace-loving religion. And Islam loves peace, and they, they advocate love, and, and they're, they're, they're good for social justice. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. And then they start talking about it, and, and we talk. We're all on the same, same uh, level. And then I say, well, what about the Jews? Well, what about the Jews? Well, the Jews, you know, they're wonderful people. And I can begin to get their, their temperature rising, 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 until they're about ready to explode. And then I say, oh, but Islam's a peace-loving religion. Yes, yeah, peace-loving religion. And by the time we get ready to leave, we're all friends again and everything's wonderful. But, but you, you can get them at that level because once you begin showing that you have enough knowledge of who they are, that they're alive, and then you, you begin to, they begin slowly but surely to change and to um, come back. I, I don't believe that it is correct to say that, that all Muslims are liars, but I do believe this. I do believe this, that the cultural standards are considerably different from, let's say, an a Arab or a Muslim Culture and of course we realize that there are many cultures that, that Islam is involved in, but but there is basically a difference. Another thing that you've got to also remember that in the the Muslim culture and particularly the Arab culture, you can't allow the the person that you're talking to to lose face. You could never accuse him of lying. You could never accuse him of telling a falsehood, because once you did, you'd be in all kinds of difficulty. You simply cannot do that. So there, you have to be, be aware of the fact that they look at truth differently than we look at truth. I remember one person, when they read the book, made a statement and says, Bill Widener believes that all Muslims are liars. And no, I don't believe that's true. I, I don't believe you can say that they are liars in the sense that we say it. But I say that they have a problem with relative truth in... Uh, their communications with people. Now, if you were to give one word to identify Islam, I wonder what that one word would be. What would it be for Christianity? Love? Fellowship? Peace? The church? I don't know what it would be. You, you could probably find a, a lot of words that you would want to use to define Christianity, but what one word would you use if you were trying to define Islam? I thought a lot about that. Would it be aggression? Would it be jihad? Would it be war? Would it be peace? What would be that one word? I've just about come to the conclusion that the one word that I would choose if I had to pick a word to define Islam would be fear. Fear. I think Islam is a religion of fear. And I feel so sorry for the Muslims that I know and I'd like to talk to you just a little bit on, on fear. I was reading a book by a Moroccan scholar, Fatima Manissi, and um, she, her, her theme of her book was Islam and democracy. She was talking about Islam and democracy and how these two get along with each other. And then the subtitle was Fear of the Modern World. 
and she based seven of her ten chapters titles on the different types of fear now faced by the modern Muslim. And I think she was right on target when she was saying fear is an integral part of Islam. The seven chapters that she spoke about where she said one chapter was fear of the foreign West. That's us. Another one was fear of the Imam. Another chapter was fear of democracy. Another chapter was fear of freedom of thought. Another was fear of individualism. Another was fear of the past. And another one was fear of the present. Now, it should be noted that Dr. Menestisi not only concentrates on the fear factor with Islam, but she herself also used fear as a basis for arguments about the provocative questions about the possibilities for democracy and human rights. She said they are fearful of these things, so fearful that they basically reject them. Well, first of all, let's, let's look at a fear of Allah. You know, we look at God... And we say, God is love. And we say that you can know God in a personal way. How? You can know God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there may be the theological danger that sometimes we're too familiar with God. You know, our great buddy in the sky and, and our close friend. You know, we, we sometimes we get a little bit too close. But the other way, one of the things that we want to do is we want to be able to recognize that we can know God. And that God is a God of love. I was making a study one time trying to understand the 99 names of God. And I came to the conclusion that, that there is no one name of God that God is love in the Arabic uh, uh, list of names. Now, one of the names is God is loving. God is loving, which means that God loves but in trying to look at the derivative of that and how most Muslims understand it, it was saying, God loves those who love him. If you love him, God will respond with a love to you. And of course, we realize that agape love is God loves us unconditionally. God loves us because, because we are his children. We're sinners, we're bad people, we're terrible people. But, but the Islamic God is, is not a God of love. It's, it's not a God that they, they can come to and can talk with and have fellowship with and can know. But the God that we have is a God that can, we can do those things. And so they have a great fear of Allah as, as their God. <clears throat> now, there was another list uh, that was made. Several Muslim writers wrote an article on the signs of fear of Allah. And this is what, what they did. These were the lists that they had. It was quite a long list, but let me read them quickly. There is a fear of death before repenting. If you die before you repent, you're in pretty bad shape. There's a fear of not living up to one's repentance and breaking one's promise. There's a fear of not being able to fulfill Allah's obligations. Allah has a certain list that you have to perform, and, and there's a fear. There's a fear of losing one's softness in the heart, and it's hardening. There's a fear of losing consistency. There's a fear of allowing temptations to dominate. There's a fear of Allah making oneself responsible for doing good deeds um, because of conceit. A fear of becoming arrogant and egotistical. A fear of being detracted from Allah. The fear of Allah revealing one's secret and one's state of, um, of uh, being. 
the fear of being stamped with a bad death at the time of death, the fear of horrors on the horizon, the fear of the awe during the presentation in front of Allah, the fear and shame of being naked, the fear of being questioned about every little thing in life, the fear of the bridge over hell, the fear of being deprived in paradise, the fear of being deprived of seeing all this tremendous uh, place. So here's a list, and, and, and what they're saying, the Muslim writers said, these are all the things that Muslims are fearful of concerning Allah. So you better be fearful if you're going to be a Muslim. What about the fear of, uh, of eternal damnation? Now, we as Christians, evangelical Christians, have the reputation sometimes of being hellfire and damnation preachers. That means we preach about hell and fire, and you don't want to go into fire. I believe it was Whitfield that had the, the famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where they were slipping into hell and, and how terrible that was. Well, I don't think that anything that we as evangelical preachers preach about even begins to compare with that which they have in, in Islam, because there is this eternal damnation. And and this eternal damnation is always brought up to them. And it's always a fact that you better be careful. You better be obedient. If you're not obedient, you're going to go into hell for all eternity. Now, in Islam, they have seven different hells. And if I'm not mistaken, Christians go into the sixth hell. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Jews go into the sixth hell. And if I'm not mistaken, the only ones that go into the seventh hell are those that were Muslims and give up their faith, and they go into the seventh hell. And I thought it was very interesting when I was studying these seven hells was the idea that the seventh hell is not a fiery hell, but it's a frozen waste. And I thought, well, I guess that's right. If you live in the desert all your life, it's probably the heat's not as bad as being frozen. So the, the, the very last hell is a frozen hell. And um, so... Um, uh, but but you have that at hell that you're going to go into. Now, what the Muslims do believe, and, and I've found different beliefs on this, one of them is that when you die, you're going to be talking to two or three angels. Some have said two angels, some have said three angels. One, one author said that you're going to have an angel sitting at a desk writing things down. You're going to have another angel that's going to be giving all of the evil deeds you did in life, another angel doing all the positive things you did in life, the third angel writing everything down, and then the angel putting those things on a scale, all the good and the bad, and you better just hope that that good and that bad um, is such that the good outweighs the bad. If not, you're going to be in trouble. Then they believe that there is a bridge called Al-Jiyar that goes over hell. And after you've presented yourself to these angels, everybody must go over this bridge in order to enter into paradise. Now, the disbelievers and those whose uh, bad deeds outweigh the good deeds will then fall into hell. So as you walk across this bridge, if you are doing more bad things than good things, you're going to fall into hell. Now, there's been several descriptions of the width of this. One said that the width of this bridge is the width of one strand of a spider's web. Another explanation is that if you turn a sharp sword up and you're walking on the edge of that sharp sword, that is the width of it. And if you fall off of this bridge, you are going to hell. 
And from most of the studies that I've made, and I'm sure that some might disagree with me, that most, if not all, Muslims will go to hell, will spend time in hell, and that the only ones that will not go to hell will be those who die in a jihad or those who die on a pilgrimage to Mecca. And those are the only ones that go directly to heaven. Otherwise, everybody else must go to hell. I've asked several imams, how long must a person stay in hell once they go to hell? And the answer is, Allah knows. Allah knows. Allah will make the decision. And Allah knows. Well, uh, in the spectacle of death, it's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty bad place. Let me read you one author's description of hell. The fire of hell is 70 degrees hotter than the worldly fire. It has seven levels, and each level has a big entrance. The first level of hell is reserved for those Muslim sinners, and the second level is for idolaters and those polytheists. The third level is for worshipers of fire, the fourth level for atheists, the fifth level for Jews, and the sixth level for Christians, and the seventh level for hypocrites, respectively. These levels of hell are known, and it gives the, the uh, Arabic names for them. Every one of these extensive levels is replete with incalculable pain, torture, and torments, and malfarious houses. For instance, there is a house, Gayi, of severity of its torments is such that the destinies of the other six levels pray 400 times daily for salvation from its tortures. There is a pond, Ab il Hamil with water so hot that the moment a sinner drinks it, his upper lip swells to such an extent that it covers his nose and his eyes and, and lower his chest. As the water passes down his throat, his, young, his tongue burns, mouth contracts, and ultimately the boiling water tears apart the human lungs and the stomach and the intestines, and they explode. Well, that's an interesting description. And uh, I read another description one time where it was talking about hell, and it said uh, that, that when you are in hell, that what happens is an angel, not a demon, but an angel will come and will begin to separate your skin from the rest of your body. And they'll take about an inch little strip and they will slowly take and remove that, that, that skin from your body with all the pain that is there. Then they'll take another strip and another strip and they will remove all of the skin from your body until there is no more skin on your body and you will immediately grow it back again, and that will take place 10,000 times. Well, you know, if, if you are, a, uh, if you are a, a Muslim, and you really want to serve God, and you realize that, that you're, you're probably going to go to hell unless you've been killed in a jihad or on a, uh, on a uh, pilgrimage, that, that, that can be kind of fearful. That can be kind of fearful. So you can understand how they can be fearful. I, I can understand very well the, the modern uh, task of, of these Muslims saying that they want to uh, die in a jihad. I, I mean, if I was a young Muslim and I was living in the Middle East, I'd be at the very front of the volunteer line saying, hey, I want to die. The Sunnis even have developed a certain theology in some areas that says that if you die, then you go directly to heaven, which I think is, is, is great. But they've also developed a theology that says also your mother and your father and your brothers and sisters go to heaven too. So if I can get my mother and dad and my brother and sister into heaven simply by blowing myself up, hey, I'm going to do that. I mean, that, 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 that seems to be rather logical. And so I'm, I'm willing to do it. We have a, an interesting word in English, 
And this word is assassinate, assassinate. And uh, one time I was curious about the word assassinate. Where did we get that? So I started doing a, a study of the word assassinate. Where did it come from? They had about three different explanations. But the first explanation, which meant this was the most likely explanation, I thought was, was very interesting. It said it came from the Middle East, and it came during the time of the Middle Ages. And it came from a man in the Middle East whose name was Asan, Asan. And Hassan was a rather wealthy man living in a city, but he did not like the political leaders, and they were causing him all kinds of problems, and he wanted to do away with them. So he, he uh, found a very interesting means of doing that. So what he did was this. He went down into the city, and he went and he drugged all of these young men. These young men were drugged. Then he took them up to his estate, which is a beautiful estate, and they had all this food and all these young girls and everything. And so what they did is is when he was up there at this estate, uh, they could do anything they would want to do for three days. When they woke up from this, this drug uh, sleep, they, they could do anything they wanted to do. And then after three days, he would drug them again, take them back down into the city and say, you are in heaven Now, if you want to go back to heaven, all you have to do is to kill this political leader and this political leader. And the next thing they knew, that the word assassinate came from that because what Hassan was doing. So it had to do with this. Now, there there is a fear of hell. There's a fear of hell. Now, there's also a fear of apostasy. And uh, we know what apostasy is. Apostasy means that if you are a Muslim and you leave your faith, you are guilty of apostasy and you are to be killed. And that's all there is to it. There, There is very little give and take in that. I'm pastor of an Iranian church and uh, there was a period of time about three or four months ago where our Iranian people said, Brother Wagner, they're passing a new law in Iran. And the new law in Iran says this, that if you leave Islam, you are to be killed. And this is a law that the parliament is going to pass. And they passed it. And the night they passed it and we found out about it, we were, they were all crying and, and praying to God, please, God, don't let this be signed by the president. The president signed it. And all they're doing is carrying out what, what is said by the Quran. If you leave Islam, you are to be killed. Now, it's a little bit difficult for us to witness to a Muslim and say, now, I want you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ with the realization that in some countries they're going to be dead. They're going to die. They will be killed. So there's a fear of apostasy. And when you, as a Christian, knock on the door of a Muslim lady and say, I've got a Bible I'd like to give you, their immediate fear is this person's going to lead me away, lead me astray, and they're going to kill me. So you've got to remember that this this fear is very much there. They did have a, a fascinating meeting about three years ago where they brought together a large number of Muslim leaders from around the world. And the main topic was apostasy. And the discussion had to do with this, as I, as I read the, the minutes of this meeting. Is it really the job of us on this earth to, to bring about the judgment on a person who leaves Islam, or should we leave that to God? Let's assume that there is a Muslim, and this Muslim converts to Christianity. Now, if that Muslim converts to Christianity, when they die, they're going to go to hell. There's no no way out. They're going to go to hell. Is it right for us 
to kill them here on this earth. Is it right for us to issue the punishment when God's going to issue the punishment? Is it not better in today's society that we allow them to go ahead and to live? Well, the conference met for three days. At the end of the conference, they made a decision. You know what their decision was? The Quran says we must kill an apostate. We cannot change the Quran. We will not change this. We will stay with what it is. A person who leaves Islam must be killed. Cut and dried. There it is. They also made another statement in, in the footnotes, and it said this. There is a fear that if they did away with this, there might be a mass movement to Christianity and other belief systems, and they don't want that to happen. So as long as they keep saying we will kill people who leave, that's there. So, so there is a fear of apostasy. There's a fear of apostasy. There's a fear of the West. There's a fear of the West. The Arabic word for the West is a word called garb, G-H-A-R-B. And uh, it's also a word for a place of darkness and the incomprehensible, and it's always frightening. And when you use this word in the Arabic uh, psyche, they always see something as being negative and bad. And so whenever they use that word, the West, it is bad. And so you understand that they have this, this great fear of, of the bad, this fear that, that the West is going to snap up the sun and swallow it. There's a fear of everybody that comes from the West. And uh, you, you have to recognize that. I was in a home one time with some Muslims in, uh, in Belgium. And uh, they, they invited me in. I knew the son, and, and I, I got to know them. And I never will forget, as I was talking, the mother said to me, Brother Wagner, or Mr. Wagner, I didn't use the word brother, Mr. Wagner, is it true that Christians in America kill and eat little Muslim babies? Well, I said, I don't think that's quite true. But it's interesting. But this was a fear that they had, a fear of the West. Now, because they were not educated people, these are the words that are going around, and they begin to be quite fearful of people in the West. They have been taught to fear the Christian church. They've been, fear, they've been taught that, that we in the West have low morals, that we have no um, uh, family life. There's a breakup of family life. They point to the decadent Christian church. They see Christianity as a dying religion in context of theirs. They see a lack of community in the West. They see Christians as having no belief system. So they see democracy, and they, they, they have this tremendous fear of of the West. Well, fear of democracy, because they see that as a Western solution to life. They see that as a Western political system, and so they're fearful of that. Now, if you get into the immigrant communities, you've got to again remember that these immigrants are not trained, educated people. And so fear is such a dominating part of who they are. I made a list one time of different fears that, that Muslims have uh, that have come from the immigrant community. One of them is fear concerning the situation in their home countries. I have learned a little bit more about this fear of being in this Iranian church because when I found out that they were going to be killing people that converted from uh, Islam to another religion, they were crying, and I, I couldn't cry with them. I remember one time I was in a conference in, in Cyprus, 
and uh, there was this war going on uh, in Lebanon. It was a civil war, and we had all these people from the Middle East at this conference, and as we were talking, one night I noticed that a bunch of the people from Lebanon were sitting over there in the corner, and they were listening to the radio, and they were all gathered around this radio. And I looked at them, and they were all crying. And I went over to them, and I said, why are you crying? And they said, Brother Wagner, Kier is being bombed. I said, so what? That's our home. Oh. And you see, they were fearful, fearful for their friends and their neighbors and their people. It was being bombed. There was destruction. And you go to Gaza, and you go to Lebanon, and you go to so many parts of the Middle East, Iraq, and, and all these places. There is this great fear of what is happening to their people, to their, to their own relatives. And there's a fear of a new culture. We all know how, what it means to be acculturated. We all know what culture shock is. You go into a new culture, and, and there's a fear of this culture. And these people that are immigrants over here, they've come. And they look at this culture as a strange culture, and they have a fear. And they fear Islam. They really do. They fear Allah. They fear Islam because they recognize that Islam for what it really is. But they can't escape it. And so they are fearful of it. Their fear from within. Many people that are living in the Western world that are immigrants have a major identity crisis particularly the second generation, the third generation. Are we Germans or are we uh, Turkish? Are we Frenchmen or are we South Africans? And they have this great fear from within. They have a fear of losing their children, that the, this new generation is going to go and, and become acculturated into this new society. And they have a fear from September 11th. They have all these stories about how many Muslims were beaten and persecuted and killed because of September 11th. They, they don't really realize what the truth is, that the number of incidences were so small that you couldn't really understand them. Well, where we are today with, with Islam is that Islam is a religion of fear. Truth, truth is a different type of a truth than what we have. It's a religion of fear. And because of these things, we have to be able to evaluate the people as we begin to speak to them and talk to them and try to help them to know Jesus Christ and to be able to allow them to know Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. Thank you.